0: Good morning, everyone. Great to have you uh, tuning in here. Um, if you're new here with us, welcome. Uh, thanks for uh, finding us and tuning in online. My name is Matt, uh, pastor here of Tri City Church. And uh, we always begin uh, just by uh, telling you a bit about what's going on in the life of the church. And, uh, of course, uh, there's a lot of things going on uh, this week in terms of uh, church gatherings. The public uh, health orders have changed for church gatherings. Uh, You probably heard this. Uh, The government brought down two uh, allowances, two variances. Uh, One was for outdoor gatherings. One was for indoor gatherings. Uh, Indoor is what we would be most excited about. That's what we want to see happen again. Uh, That's what we were hoping for. Uh, but if you look through the details of the indoor allowances, uh, unfortunately it just is not feasible for us given our building. Uh, they say you could have 50 indoors or 10% of your capacity, the room capacity, whatever one is the lesser. So in our case, uh, we can fit about 210 people in this room. So 21 people is not very much, especially since that includes our band and our tech people. We get down to maybe there's 10 people we could we could welcome in. That's, that's just not enough to, to make it uh, work well for us here at Tri-City, unfortunately, but But the outdoor allowances uh, have been expanded. And we are excited about that. And so what I want to do is give you just kind of a picture of where we're going as a church. And then tell you what Easter weekend will look like. So as a church, uh, we are going to this week uh, build a a platform, a stage, just beside the church entrance that we can use each Sunday. Uh, If you remember for Good Friday, it was going to be up on the roof. I think we all know that wasn't really a great idea. That wasn't going to go well. So we're going to build a a raised platform. And we're going to be able to use that every Sunday. Sunday because according to the public health orders, we are allowed 50 cars to come and gather and also 50 people outside. And so that that really gives us 100-plus uh, people for every gathering uh, going forward. And so that's that's going to be our plan, is to open it up so that we can have maybe three gatherings every Sunday, just like we did before, and you have the choice of coming in your car, coming in person. The other thing we'd like to add to it is uh, some kids' programs in the building. That's also allowed, so uh, those with young families, a Sunday school will be made available. So that's the direction that we're going. We're going to uh, double down on the outdoor gatherings, the weather's going to be Nicer. We think it's going to be great. For Easter weekend, though, uh, we are going to do this. Uh, You already know Good Friday is going to be a drive in. In fact, it's pretty much full. Uh, If you haven't yet signed up, I think 12 o'clock. is available. So that's going to be our communion service. But for Easter, we're also going to do uh, a drive-in services. So here's our plan for Easter. It's going to be like an old school drive-in. As I said, everything will be outside. We'll have a stage outside and we will have three services available, 9, 10, 30, and 12. there will be a bit of a shorter uh, uh, sat gathering itself. Uh, The great thing about this is that we have the room to be able to invite people. So we can invite our friends, invite our neighbors. We have invite cards uh, that we can give out. And uh, we can tell people, look, jump in your car, come to a drive-in service. Uh, All the audio will come through your car stereo. It's a great way to come and celebrate and rejoice in the Easter story or maybe hear it for the first time. So I really encourage us as a, as a church, I hope we see this as an opportunity, and uh, I hope right now even you'll go to the church website, you can click on the drive-in link and sign up. Uh, we'd love to see everyone here, uh, hopefully the weather will be nice and we will be able to sing and rejoice together. So that's the plan for Easter weekend, and then beyond that, uh, there'll be even more outdoor details to come. So, I'm going to pray for us now, pray that uh, this week everything would come together, Uh, pray for those that have been invited, that they will come and join us or even tune in online on Easter Sunday, and I'm going to pray for our time uh, together here and now. We have a guest, a speaker, Greg Harris, who's going to be bringing the word, so I'm going to pray for him. Join with me. Lord God, uh, I thank you for the Easter season. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that despite all of the the challenges that COVID has brought and these restrictions have brought, Lord, we do have an opportunity to celebrate and remember uh, the hope of the gospel, the hope of the Easter story. And so I pray, Lord Jesus, I pray for us as a church that we would be excited about the opportunities to come together once again, Lord, that we would um, have people in our minds and in our hearts that we can invite, uh, Lord, that the fact that it's a drive-in, the fact that it's different would not deter us uh, from coming and worshiping together. And so I pray, Lord, that this would be a week where uh, your name is is, uh, lifted up, where uh, the resurrection story is made known to many in our community, and that many people are saved. And I pray right now, Lord, as we dig into the word, into a portion of the Easter story, I pray, Lord, you would use uh, the words you've given Greg to bless us, your people, and to lead us closer to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Greg Harris, uh, when we were just a new church plant, uh, he would come and preach pretty much every other month, and so you might recognize him. I'm so thankful for him. Uh, he gives leadership to the uh, East Abbotsford campus for Northview, is our kind of our our mother church, and so uh, we're glad to have him back. And uh, here he is. Come on over, Greg. Thanks, Matt. It is. Uh, it's great
1: to be back. Uh, for those uh, of you that I'm a familiar face, it's nice to. I guess, be seen by you <laughs> again. Uh, I would love if Matt would have me back sometime uh, when all the services are back together. It'd be really fun to be here when this building's full again. But I guess uh, he'll be in the back taking notes and we'll see how this goes this morning, whether or not I get invited back again. Um, so March 1st, it was a Sunday last year, uh, 2020, I was at our East for campus and I was doing what I do as a campus pastor, uh, hosting the service and uh, in the hallway, connecting with people and, uh, you know, looking at our, our, our baked goods section where people were going in there with their bare hands, uh, touching baked goods and putting them back and all kinds of stuff that now uh, we would be freaking out about. Uh, and... Uh, I remember on that Sunday, I had a conversation with a man that I actually had a conversation with him every single Sunday uh, at our East for campus. His name is A.D. Vandenberg. And uh, just this delightful, uh, charismatic, kind, uh, elderly man uh, in his uh, 80s. And he uh, would would shuffle along with his cane, and I would see him in the morning. I'd say, hey, welcome here. It's great to see you. And he would tell me any Sunday that I can make it here is a good Sunday. And uh, we would joke, and he would make fun of my bloodstones and uh, all kinds of, it was really awesome seeing him there every Sunday. Uh, Fast forward a few days on March 4th, which was a Wednesday. I went to a Canucks game, uh, full stadium. They lost, as they do. Uh, The following Sunday, March 8th, uh, I was supposed to be there at our campus, but I uh, was really sick with the stomach flu, so I wasn't able to make it. And then Sunday, March 15th, uh, in-person services for churches were suspended. Fast forward to March 3rd of this year, 2021. It was a Wednesday afternoon, and there was a 10-person funeral service for A.D. Vandenberg. Uh, he passed away from complications from COVID-19. I had no idea on March 1st, 2020, uh, when I saw him and he made fun of my bloodstones, that that would be the last time that I would ever see him. I was reminded when I got the text message that A.D. passed away that death truly is the great enemy of life. This morning, I want us to look at John chapter 11. Uh, it's one of my very favorite passages in all of scripture. And uh, in it, we're going to see that Jesus is the victor over death. And if you're a Christian, uh, this might be a familiar story to you. It's about Jesus and his good buddy, Lazarus. Uh, And so as we go through it, I really want us to feel the story uh, anew, afresh. I want us to feel the depth of the story. I want us to feel the beauty of this familiar story. I want us to hear it like it's our first time hearing it. And maybe for some of us, it maybe actually is the first time that you've heard it. And so here's what I want us to do. We're going to go through uh, 50 verses in John chapter 11. Uh, We'll get through it, though, together. We got through it at the first service, so I I trust that the Lord will get us through this one as well. Uh, We're going to go through it in five sections. Uh, First, a tense funeral. Secondly, an angry Jesus. Third, a living Lazarus. Fourth, an unexpected messenger. And fifth, a victorious Jesus. I'm going to walk us through those five points uh, as we go through the sermon. And just a heads up, the first point is by far the longest one. And then after that, we'll, uh, we'll be cruising, okay? So don't keep looking at your watch thinking to yourself, this is just the first point. Don't worry about it. We will get through it, okay? So let's look at this scene, John 11, and how it really is a very tense funeral. John chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and you're going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. So let's, uh, a few little highlights from this first few verses. Uh, Verse 4, Jesus uh, tells his disciples that the illness that Lazarus has is not going to lead to his death, but is actually going to be used for the glorification of God and the glorification of the Son of God in particular. So, Jesus uh, has a plan in place for what is going to take place in the verses that follow. So, what we have here is a scene of great uh, suffering, of great crisis, and yet a God, Jesus Christ, who is firmly in control of the situation. Verse 5, we hear that Jesus loves Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And then the plot takes a twist because it says that he loved them so much and he also stayed back for another two days. We would think it would say Jesus loved them so much that he hurried off to Bethany to see Lazarus. And yet what we hear is that he loved them so much and he stayed where he was. And just kind of hung out for a while. Uh, He was probably in a area, wilderness area, outside um, of the area of Jordan, where uh, he was probably about a two days journey to get from where he was to get to where uh, Bethany, the village, is. So what we see here is this picture of Jesus, who deeply loves his friends, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, and yet who in his uh, withdrawal of his intervention, intentionally allows something very difficult to happen to his friends. He uh, does not act right away. He instead stays back and allows the difficulty to take place. This is a fabulous reminder for us as Christians who love Jesus and who are loved by Jesus that even in the midst of the crisis and the pain and the problem that Jesus is firmly in control, the sovereign Jesus over every area of creation is in control even in the midst of our crisis moments. What a good reminder for us in the midst of COVID-19 as this seems to be dragging on longer and longer for us, and we want to know when the finish line is, and we want to know when the end is, and we're anxious, and we're impatient, and we are frustrated, and we are prone to think that maybe Jesus doesn't actually love us because all these things are taking place, and yet we know from this passage, Jesus deeply loved his friends and also hung back for a few days. He's firmly in control. Jesus loves his friends, and does not actually move. But then he does tell them, look, I I want us to go to Bethany, okay? I do want us to go there. Uh, And his disciples are blindsided by this, because they're saying to themselves, Jesus, why are we going back into Bethany? Because that's the area of Judea. That's the area where Jerusalem is in. And uh, we are now going back into the storm that you created. So a few chapters earlier, Jesus created quite a, a, a chaotic scene with some of the things that he said, which we'll get to here in a second. But what you need to picture in your mind here is when Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going back to Judea, what he is saying is, I'm going back into the eye of the storm. So, you know those videos that you see of storm chasers where the freeway is filled with cars going one direction and the storm chaser with his video camera is heading directly into the eye of the storm? That is what we have here. Jesus headed back into Judea, even though he knows where he's going is a place of chaos. And the reason it's a place of chaos is because of what Jesus did in Jerusalem the previous months. So, I have a chart for us to take a look at. I want us to get a feel for the the timeline of what happened in uh, Jerusalem and Judea around that time. So, in September of the year thirty two a d Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles we 'll talk about that a little bit more about a month later, Jesus healed a blind man and then talked about how he is the Good shepherd in December. Jesus went to Jerusalem at the temple to join uh, the Feast of Dedication... And then he withdrew to the area near Jordan, which was that kind of wilderness area that was a 2 days journey from Bethany, which he returned to in March. So in a, in a few months span, Jesus had some very high-profile and highly contentious engagements in the city of Jerusalem through these different feasts of the tabernacle and feast of the dedication. And the reason why they were such uh, tension points and uh, chaotic events is because when he was, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at these feasts, he, in no uncertain terms, called himself God. So here, I want, us to, I want us to feel the tension in Jerusalem in Judea because of the words of Jesus. So first of all, Jesus claims his divinity at the Feast of Tabernacles in September of AD 32. Um, the Feast of Tabernacles was a annual feast, That the Jews participated in to remind themselves of God's provisional care for them in the midst of the wilderness. So, uh, Israel was enslaved in Egypt... They cry out. God sends Moses to deliver them from Egypt to bring them to the promised land. But before they go into the promised land, they have a generation in the wilderness. And God provisionally cared for them in the midst of the wilderness. And that is what they celebrated at the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. The the reminder that they built tents for themselves and they built a tent for the Lord to dwell in while they were wandering through the wilderness and God continued to provide for them. There were two ceremonies that uh, at least two that they did during this week. Uh, the first was a water ceremony where they reminded themselves of how God provided water through a rock when Moses struck it. And the second one was a light ceremony. And the light ceremony was a reminder to them of how God was a, a pillar of smoke by day to guide the people through the wilderness. And he was a pillar of fire by night to guide them in the nighttime. And it's in the midst of this feast, this scene that Jesus goes into the temple, John 7, 37 and 38, says, On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice where many people would hear him, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. What Jesus is saying is, you know, that water that came out of the rock in the wilderness and how it, it satisfied and quenched the thirst of the people I am that water. I'm the one that will quench your thirst. And then he continues on in John chapter 8, still at this festival. In verse 12, Jesus says, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus reminds them, hey, remember that pillar of smoke by day and the pillar of fire by night? I am the light of the world. The pillar of fire that led you through the darkness so you knew where you were going. I'm the light of the world. If you follow me, you will know where to go in the midst of the dark. Jesus is calling himself God. You know how at Christmas time we sing these familiar Christmas carols uh, and we have the melodies and the words rolling through our minds, right? So we'll sing like, oh, uh, oh, come let us adore him. And that song, the, the words will flow in our minds as the Christmas season goes on. That would have been true too of the Feast of Tabernacles. There would have been songs that were sung that would have been song, sung during this particular festival. And a lot of the songs would actually uh, circle around, uh, be focused on the, the primary theological affirmation of who God is and who he claimed to be to the people of Israel in this time. Namely, using the words, I am he, the, the, the Greek ego me." So if you were walking through uh, the temple during the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, you would have heard the music play in the stores about how God is him, uh, the one who calls himself I am He. And it's in that context that Jesus in John 8 says these words. He continued, You're from below, I'm from above. You're of this world, I'm not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am He. You will indeed die in your sins. Who are you? the Jews asked. Just what I've been telling you from the beginning, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is trustworthy, and I have heard from him. What I have heard from him, I tell the world. They did not understand what he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the son of man in crucifixion, then you will know that I am he. And that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Even as he spoke, many believed in him. Did you hear Jesus use those words that were declaring about who God is? The great I am he. Jesus says, I am he. In no uncertain terms, he is calling himself God. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you've seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple ground. See, in no uncertain terms, Jesus in the temple in Jerusalem during this great feast declared himself to be God. A few months later, at the Feast of Dedication, John 10, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colony of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. And then in verse 40, he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And that's where he was when the news came to him that his buddy Lazarus was very ill. And Jesus tells his disciples, I am going to go back into Judea. And his disciples say, are you crazy? Because if you go back, they're going to kill you. They've been trying to kill you since you said you were God. And Jesus says, I have to go back. John 11, verse 11. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, as he had to do often, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But... Let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. So look, we we need to note here that that Jesus is now going back into the eye of the storm of chaos that he created because of his self-declaration of his divinity, that he is God. And he has now arrived at the scene uh, of this ongoing funeral service. What's interesting here, verse 17 tells us that Lazarus was in the tomb for four days. It's an interesting little detail because... The Jewish custom of the time would have understood that the soul of a, of a deceased person hovered over the body for two days. And then after the two days, if the soul didn't re-enter the body, then the person would stay dead. But if the soul did re-enter the body, then that person would have come back to life. And so uh, you would go back to the tomb of a recently deceased person after a few days of them being dead to like double check that they're like really dead dead. There's actually some stories uh, from uh, Jewish rabbinic literature that that talks about people who were buried thinking they were dead, but they actually weren't. Uh, Here's one story. It says, "'We go out to the cemetery and examine the dead within three days. It once happened that there was a man who was buried, and when we examined him, he was found to be living, and he lived for 25 more years, and then he died. Another, we examined him, and then he lived, and he bore five more children before he died.'" So, you would go back after a few days to make sure are they actually dead. And if after two days they were still dead, then they were considered to be dead, dead. And so Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. In other words, he ain't coming back. Verse 18 Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So Martha is uh, reaffirming some orthodox or, or true Jewish theology that would say that um, that those who are faithful to God would be a part of a resurrection on the last day. And Jesus says, look, your brother is going to rise again. And she says, yeah, I know that on the last day he's going to rise, but she's kind of missing the point of what Jesus is trying to do in this story. There's another little detail that we need to hear. Verse 18 says that many of the Jews had come Uh, It would have been customary for any funeral in the first century for you to pay for there to be professional mourners. So if you wanted a job in the first century, one job you could have is as a a funeral attender who would just mourn for days with the people who uh, were mourning the loss of their loved one. And so there was probably a lot of these mourners who were hired. There was probably also uh, some family around, uh, but Many of the Jews from Jerusalem came. What this means is that this family, Martha, Mary, Lazarus, they were a well-known, prominent, and most likely highly wealthy family. Actually, in John 12, we're going to hear that Mary takes a whole bunch of really expensive, rare perfume and dumps it on Jesus to anoint him. No, No poor person would have access to that kind of perfume, but Mary does. And at Lazarus's funeral, there were a lot of people there because they were highly prominent in the area. In other words, Jesus is entering into a very tense funeral with a lot of people there who want him dead. And this is the scene that Jesus is walking straight into. The man who claims that he is God is back into the eye of the storm and it's a tense funeral indeed. Second point. I told you the first one was the longest. These last ones will go way faster. Second thing in this passage, we see an angry Jesus. Verse 25 of John 11. Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher's here, and he's calling for you. When she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Mary, Martha had met him. When the Jews, who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. So these, these paid mourners and other people in the, in the scene in the house were like, all right, wherever you go, we go. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of a blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. I want us to see here how in verses 33 and 38, it tells us that Jesus was deeply moved and greatly troubled. This is language in, in the original language of Greek that is giving us the sense of, of anger of what's taking place here. It's, the, it's uh, a word for, um, you know, so my daughter, she's three years old, and um, when she is really mad, she'll go... <coughs> Um, that's what animals do too when they're really mad, right? Horses. This is the, this is the imagery the Greek language is trying to get after here. It it is this, this visceral response of disgust and anger at what is taking place. So, we can't miss the point. Jesus, the Son of God, hates death. It moves him to viscerally react in anger. And also this Jesus who loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus is is moved to empathy when he sees his loved ones grieving over the loss of their brother, Lazarus. And we hear that Jesus wept. You see, Jesus was the embodiment of what the New Testament commands us to do, which is to mourn with those who mourn. Jesus hates death. It angers him. Jesus grieves death and mourns with those who mourn. Uh, 10, maybe 15, uh, no, about 12 years ago now, uh, my, my Nana passed away um, and uh, she, at her funeral, the, uh, the pastor got up and he very, with good intentions, told the, the crowd, today is not a day to grieve. And I know why he said that. It's because my nana loved Jesus. And what it means at a Christian funeral is that we believe that that person is now absent from the body, but present with the Lord. And yet, Jesus, the the Lord of life, was angry at death and mourned with those who mourn. Jesus hates death. Thirdly, we see a living Lazarus. Verse 38, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there's going to be an odor, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips like a mummy. And his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. So you have to imagine this scene. There is a horde of people there who have. Come to the scene because they are there to mourn. And they say they see Jesus, this, this man who claims to be God. And Jesus talks to the sisters. He tells them to move the stone away. Everyone is watching the scene wondering what is going to take place. And Jesus cries out to his friend, Lazarus, come out. And now you have to imagine being Lazarus. You're lying on a stone slab. And you can't see because there's a cloth in front of your eyes. Your eyelids and your eyelashes scrape against the cloth. And and you can't really move because your body is tightly wrapped in a cloth. You're moving your fingers. You are taking a deep breath. You feel your lungs expand. You feel the blood return to the very tips of your finger. Like when, you're, when your body is, you sleep weird on your arm and it comes back to life. The blood recirculates. His whole body had the experience of of coming out of sleep, of coming back to life. And he rolls out of the slab like a pure core exercise, gets himself up somehow and hops his way forward outside of the tomb the man who was as dead as dead can be is now breathing the air around him the dead, decaying, decomposing body of Lazarus began to have blood flow. His heart beat. His brain activity resumed. His lungs breathed air. He would wiggle his toes and blink his eyes. He had the linen removed from him. This man who was dead is now alive again. This was the biggest scene, uh, sign that Jesus had in his public ministry. The book of John is divided in a few sections. There's the beginning kind of introductory chapter. And then in chapters two through 12, you have Jesus performing his sign ministry, his public ministry. Uh, And then after that, you have Jesus talking to his disciples and then him going towards his crucifixion and his resurrection. This story of Lazarus being raised from the dead is the pinnacle, the climax of Jesus's public ministry. Amidst this huge crowd of people who hate him, Jesus tells Lazarus, come on out, bud. It's time to stop being dead. And out comes the living Lazarus, the impossible made possible by the power of Jesus. Actually, some commentators in church history have said that if Jesus didn't clarify the name Lazarus, the sheer power of his word would have caused all of those who were dead to be resuscitated. Fourth, there's an unexpected messenger. Verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them were tattletales, and they went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They're freaking out. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Relax, guys. Nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. See, Jesus came back into the eye of the storm. His disciples said, if you go back there, they're going to try to kill you. And that is exactly what happened. The religious leaders were furious at this sign. But what's intriguing about this section that I want us to see is that Caiaphas becomes an unexpected messenger of good news. (laughs) Because he says that Jesus is going to be the one who dies for the nation. See, what Caiaphas thought he meant when he said these words was... Here's what's going to actually happen, guys. The Romans aren't going to try to snuff all of us out. They're not going to kill every single Jew. What the Romans are going to do is they're going to see that this man, Jesus, has got a huge following, a huge crowd around him. They're going to assume that he is here to lead a rebellion against the Romans. Uh, the Romans. And what, what they're going to do is they're just going to kill Jesus. And why don't we just let that take place, right? Let's let him kill him. But Caiaphas didn't know was that Jesus came not to deal with the Romans, but to actually deal with sin. Jesus didn't come to be a religious zealot and a leader to overthrow the oppressors named Rome. He came to die on a cross to defeat death and sin. Caiaphas proves that a broken clock can still be right twice a day. Caiaphas had no idea what he was talking about. And yet he brings to those who are listening the good news of the gospel, that one man has died for the nation of the Jews and not only for the Jews, but for everyone. Jesus's enemies, the religious elites who wanted him dead for blasphemy actually became the unexpected, unexpected messengers of the gospel. The one man, Jesus, did actually die for the Jews and for the whole world. And yet a dead Jesus isn't actually very good news. Which leads us to number five. We have a victorious Jesus. I really hope you heard these key key verses in the middle of the chapter. Verses 25 through 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? There's a great book uh, by a Puritan. Actually, I don't know if it's great. The title's great. I've read the title. (laughs) Not the whole book. It's by a Puritan named John Owen. And it's called The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. That in the death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, what we have is death itself, which Jesus hated being defeated. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. See, Jesus was actually killed. The religious elites got their way. They didn't stone him to death. Instead, they rallied the Roman authorities to crucify him. Jesus died. The God-man who hated death was dead. He's put in a cave. The stone rolled across it, wrapped up in linens with a cloth around his face. Until that Sunday morning, when Jesus had his heart begin to beat again and his brain activity resumed and his lungs filled with air and he wiggled his toes his fingertips and he felt the blood come back to every part of his body. He unwrapped himself and he walked out of the grave. Because Jesus is the victor over death. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And he asks, do you believe this? Because here's the gravity of the situation. We are all dead in our sin. We're dead, dead. We're not the soul hovering over our body for a few days trying to find a way back in. We are four days dead. We have no hope of living again because of our sin. We're wrapped up and put in a tomb like a mummy And we lay there hopeless. And Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life and is our great friend, comes to our tomb and he says, take the stone away. And he calls us by name. And he says, come out. And when the spirit of God has the gospel of God preached to our hearts our lungs fill with air and our brain activity resumes and we can feel our fingertips move and our toes move and our eyelashes hit the cloth in front of our face and we realize that we're alive Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Our dead, decaying, decomposing bodies had blood flow through them again because of the blood of Jesus Christ, the resurrection and the life. See, God hates death. But Jesus is the victor. Over death. The death of death occurred through the death and resurrection of Jesus. New life is available for you. He's calling your name and saying it's time to come out. Do you believe this? Let me pray for us. Father, I'm deeply thankful for uh, this story of scripture written by your servant, John. I'm I'm so thankful. It's such a deep passage with so much that we could unpack. And yet, Father, I'm, I'm so thankful for the main idea, which is that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, that Jesus is the one who comes to us who are dead in sin, and he calls us by name, and he calls us to live, and he does that because he is the victor over death. What great news that the God who hates death is the victor over it. So Father, I pray that you would help us believe this good news. That we would feel the blood return to our fingertips. That we would live in light of the Lordship of Jesus because we are a new creation in him. We praise you, we thank you for your care for us even when we don't know what's happening around us. We know that you are in control and you've proven it over and over again by your faithfulness and most clearly you've proven it by conquering death itself. So we praise you for this. We pray all these things for your fame and in Jesus' name, amen.